Welcome to Top Advisor Marketing, where you will learn how to become a prolific online influencer, attract more ideal clients, and grow your practice. Brought to you by Top Advisor Podcasting, a done-for-you podcasting solution built just for trusted advisors. And now, your co-hosts of Top Advisor Marketing, Kirk Lowe and Matt Halloran. Hello and welcome to another Top Advisor Marketing Podcast. This is the second in our three-part series with everybody from Northern Trust and FlexShares. We've got David and Laura back again, and today we're going to truly dive in to the findings of the research, and I'm super excited about this. So let's talk about the key findings, and I'd like to start by saying, what did you guys learn that you weren't expecting? Well, Matt, it's great to be with you again, and I can say that there were a few things, and I'm guessing that... What surprised me varied a little bit, uh, maybe by what surprised you, David. Would that be fair? Yeah, that'd be very fair, Laura. I mean, I am under stress myself, and so when I saw the survey that's, that was suggesting that men in general were stressed out, I kind of felt vindicated. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really nice. So, but that was an unexpected. I mean, especially for primary breadwinner men, which I fall in that category, and balancing work and life responsibilities and work and home responsibilities, that was just an eye-opening moment for me. And, you know, um, that stat also, it, it didn't really surprise me. It more c- cemented that my family isn't uh, the anomaly. Mm-hmm. My husband is home more often than I am because I travel quite a bit. And he really runs the household. The kids are where they need to be when they need to be there homework's done when it needs to be done. He does the majority of the cooking, although I am the better cook when I have time. <laughs> but but to hear that so many men feel that stress of keeping everything going at home as well as in the office really uh, made me feel like we weren't uh, the unicorn family. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the other findings, because I think that's fantastic, and I love that that's unexpected and reinforcing to both of you, and I'm sure our listeners, but what are some of the other key findings? Well, the big one for me was how many men actually identified as a conservative investor. And typically in our business, we we have not historically associated that with men. Mm-hmm. And so we've been presenting, as you know, around the country, and one of the uh, individuals, advisors in the audience came up afterwards and said, well, what if the definition was not the same? Well, actually, we did actually defined the definition that they both utilized. So nice. it wasn't like we just said conservative we actually defined what conservative meant. Yeah, I think this advisor, her comment to us was, yeah, 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 but, you know, men always think they're more conservative than they really are. And so it was wonderful for us to be able to share with her the definition, and she kind of nodded her head and said, okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> the, other, the other thing, though, when we were in St. Louis, and we had that mm-hmm. advisor come up afterwards, mention that, well, I think men, maybe these men have already made their money, so they can afford to be conservative. And I go back to the survey where we were doing, you know, 35 and up, and I can't say that 35 yeah. and up have all got, made their money. So it was, we were able to talk through that, and I, you know, that may be a, a small factor, and we are actually doing some qualitative further analysis to try to uh, tease that out. But overall, I, I think that's a shift in our culture, and our study kind of brought that out. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I also felt good about the survey results that talked about this group of women. And it's important to remember the group of 
women and men we're talking about. It's not the entire universe of investors. It's high net worth, primary breadwinners, more than a million in investable assets outside qualified retirement plans or primary residents. So these are the people that have sole, sole or most of the responsibility of household income. So, you know, forever we've been hearing that women are afraid of risk and afraid of investments. And I, you know, I know that that's not true. And so for me, it was I was happy to see these results come out that said women are actually less conservative, almost half as we found that the men were twice as conservative as women, self-identified, of course. And then even on the aggressive uh, side, 11% of men identified with being aggressive investors, uh, with 7% of women identifying as being aggressive investors. So that variance is much smaller than it was in the conservative end, uh, which was uh, 31% of men identified as conservative investors and 14% of women. So despite the other studies that have come out in recent years saying that women are not afraid of risk, we that's still the go-to stat that's used in this industry. So I was excited to see us be able to identify that that's not always the case. And there are ramifications, of course, in portfolio management. If you assume that as an advisor that they're a woman investor is conservative in by nature and not take into account they're a breadwinner executive. There was an article or a study done this past summer in King's College over in England that showed that women who are cons- have men as their advisors oftentimes will underperform because they'll have too much cash in their portfolio, mm. which is the assumption that they're conservative. Right. So there's a real world ramification having that assumption. Wow. And that's, you know, again, David alluded to the fact that we're doing some qualitative research, and that's one of the things we're going to dive in more deeply on, and hopefully we'll be able to share that on the next podcast. But we really wanted to get underneath some of these these statistics that don't align necessarily with the statistics we see on the broad uh, group of investors out there in our industry. And this is caused because we keep getting advisors after we speak come up. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And so we understand why, and we want to know because we both sat there when we got the initial findings and we're, our mouths were open and just mm-hmm. like, wow, this is really different. So to have this more qualitative uh, approach next should really supply some great information to advisors to apply it. You guys opened a can of worms here. I mean, you really did. And, and what a great can of worms because it's giving you the opportunity to find out more stuff, dig deeper, find out, hear the objections, which is wonderful. You guys are speaking all over the country because you're hearing the objectives and maybe that will force you to think of things differently. But a lot of those objections are just reinforcing a lot of those, well, incorrect stereotypes. But what did you guys find that wasn't as surprising? They're like, yeah, I pretty much thought that's the way it was going to be. Well, again, you know, I would go back to risk. Um, I was not surprised, and I was happy to hear that women are not afraid of risk. And also, I think it's that executives, no matter the gender, are really more alike than not alike. Wow. Um, I mean, just think of it. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you've got the primary responsibility for keeping the household afloat, You've got a, you know, a very important job. And, you know, and, and it's important to say these are not just executives. We also had medical professionals, doctors, lawyers, and so forth. But they all 
we all deal with the same challenges, right? It doesn't matter that I'm a woman and David's a man. We still, you know, there's still the concern of bringing home the income, making sure all of our our long-term financial plans are in order and whatnot. Well, I'll give you a stereotype. I wasn't surprised that the men did had a large percentage of 10 out of 10 on their knowledge of investments. <laughs> because having been in this industry now over 30 years, having lived in the era when there wasn't an iPhone, having to ask a gas station along the route, how do I get to this place? Mm-hmm. Having had that argument with my spouse many times before the iPhone came out, I can tell you that I was not surprised that men did 10 out of 10. Mm. Yeah, and that was 44% of the respondents, of uh, male respondents, said that they were experts. So, again, I'm not sure if that's a positive for the advisors working with these men or if that's a negative. Um, But I think, you know, and I'm going to a stereotype now, but I think that women are, again, more likely to ask questions and to consider that they may not have all of the answers. Now, they were the women in our survey rated themselves, you know, on average, a seven or eight out of 10. So they're very highly confident in their investment skills. They just didn't consider themselves experts. Um, so I'll give you another example that it's interesting because we're not in an era of huge stress in the market. Mm-hmm. So answering that question, but I remember in 2008 when my father in law, who is a retired physician, would, would have been one of these that we would have surveyed. He came up to me and he said, what do I sell now? And that was very enlightening. Number one, being a son-in-law, I did not want to be his advisor. (laughs) Not because I didn't want to do the job, but because our family relations, it would have been better. But to have him think he knew about investments and then go under duress was very enlightening to me. Now, how was that question asked? Because, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that we have uh, lots of, uh, you, you have some of that stuff in front of you. But the reason why I want to ask that question is because investing is one sort of perspective. Planning, did they? Did you guys ask a planning-based question? Yeah, we, we absolutely did. So we had uh, two questions. One was, and, and both of them were, rate your, your uh, knowledge on a scale of 1 to 10, one being a novice, 10 being an expert. And so as it relates to investments, the question was, rate your, yourself on your level of knowledge of investments. And then we had a series of, I think there were eight metrics that went to financial planning. It included things like retirement, uh, philanthropy, managing your own portfolio, and a number of other things. Okay. And so again, for each of those items, it was a one to, skin, one to 10 scale novice to expert. Uh, On the financial planning acumen, uh, again, we didn't have as many experts, but but when there were, they were men. (laughs) Uh, But overall, uh, both genders rated themselves between a seven and a nine out of all of those. Women uh, skewed a little bit higher on creating and following a budget than the men. But again, um, these were all very high scores that they gave themselves. Mm. I wonder if you asked the same group of people how they felt about medicine, if they would rank themselves that high. You know, I, I don't know. Well, you know, I, I don't I don't know. Just it just is funny to me because 
this is such a complex world. I mean, CFAs and everybody who, you know, CFPs, all of these advanced designations who are actually experts, they probably don't even rank themselves as a 10, uh, but, but I digress. Okay, so let's dive a little bit more into the gender stuff, uh, even more. What what other things kind of bubbled up there from, from a gender perspective that was either eye-opening or something that you definitely want our audience to hear? Yes, absolutely. So w- one of the things that was really uh, surprising to me, we asked our respondents to tell us what their top two current financial goals were. And so, you know, what we generally hear is that women investors are investing for their family to make sure their children are cared for and whatnot. Those were not top current goals for the women. Mm. The number one goal was to be prepared for the worst, followed by retirement planning, followed by philanthropy. Men, on the other hand, the number one goal, and it was almost a complete flip-flop. So Mm -hmm. almost 70% of the women said planning for the worst was their top current financial goal. For men, it was taking care of future generations. Again, about 70%. Being prepared for the worst for men ranked down around 30%, as did planning for future generations for women. The number two top current financial goal for men, was finding an advisor they could trust. Oh. And third was taking care of dependents. So David remembers this. A lot of lively conversation took place in our offices around that. Our PR group are there to protect us and promote us. And in their role as protector, they said, yeah, we got to take all of that stuff out of the press release. Because what if there was a headline that said, Flexshare says women care more about philanthropy than taking care of their children? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, we, we went back and forth and we reworded things slightly, but we, David and I both felt that this was a really important statistic. Mm-hmm. Um, again, and these are current financial goals. So, yeah, and I would, they are goals, but they're also their feelings that they hold. They're not, how do I put this? They're not uh, like bedrock, but they're feelings that they hold. And so to, to say that those feelings are legitimate by not including them in the study, it's just not, yeah. because that is where our PR team was assuming. And so we were saying, well, this is the meat of it. This is why this study is so important, but it was not easy. And I can imagine that advisors are on either whether young or old have have a hard time with assumptions that contradict totally what they know either whether they're just getting in the business or at the end of the mm-hmm. at the end of their career so uh, that's that was very enlightening to us and you know i i well i love this work i love the research and i really love when my work kind of collides with my personal life, Mm -hmm. um, to an extent, of course. (laughs) But over Labor Day weekend, I was at my cousin's home, beautiful home on the beach of uh, Lake Michigan, and uh, my cousin is an entrepreneur, successful. Her husband is an entrepreneur, both different businesses. And they have five children. They had just dropped their last one off to college and welcomed their first grandchild. 
grandchild came from their 30-year-old son, well-employed, as is his wife. And my cousin Meg said, you know, it was the strangest thing, Laura. We drove into Chicago to, to meet the baby. I was so excited. And Jack didn't say a word. And if you know Jack, he does, he, he is never short on words. He's always got something to say. One of those jovial people you love to be around. So the hour or so drive in, he was silent. Not until they pulled into the parking garage at the hospital did he turn and say to Meg, I don't know if I can do this. We just dropped our last one off. And now we've got all of this responsibility coming at us. And Meg looked at him and said, it's not our responsibility. We've done our job. But it reinforces that statistic that men are thinking about the financial responsibility for future generations. Whether they should be or not is a completely different thing. Uh, his wife was, you know, very much like, hey, my job's done. We, we <laughs> raised them. They're great kids. They're, you know, gainfully employed. It's on them now. Yeah. But that has ramifications for how you run your budget as a household mm-hmm. and how the advisor should question both parties to say, okay, what are your both your goals? Because that's going to impact how they invest and how they spend. I wonder how many advisors do the goal setting questions autonomously. Like sit down with the husband and sit down with the wife and say, hey, you know what? You're going to go into this room and do this and you're going to go into this room. And I think that many of them might be a little nervous to do that because they don't want to be the marriage counselor if they didn't line up. Okay. Perception is reality, right? And I love the fact that you guys address how they feel. Right. Let's talk about people's men and women's perception and also how our industry has perceived men and women in these situations. So, well, you know, I'll kick it off. We're pretty nimble here, but we do like to include a larger group when we're pushing out research and, and to get a lot of different views and reactions. And so beyond the, the PR role, there were some others that we shared our initial findings with and specifically on how more men than women said that they took on more than 50% of caregiving responsibilities. And as you might imagine, some of the reactions were like, oh, that's interesting. Others were like, that's nuts. There's no way that's happening. No, no way. And and our point was, you know what? It, it really doesn't matter if it's reality. This is all self-reported data. The the issue is that it's how these men are feeling. And for an advisor to understand how they feel about the roles that they're taking on at home, if that that they are stressed, that they feel they're doing the lion shares, lion's share of the work is is critically important in terms of building and deepening the relationship. But you can imagine our PR teams headline worry about how men do more work at home than women. And that's the point of what Laura just said. It's not that they do necessarily. They might, some of them, <laughs> but the feeling that they do. and that, But that applied both to men and to women. If they're the breadwinner, they're feeling like they're doing more. Oh, what else? Were there any other uh, things on perception that you guys were like, oh my gosh, because by the way, that right there is mind-blowing, and I love that that's a, that's a focus, uh, and, and that's something that you guys teased out. Were there any other sort of perception things that you guys thought, you know what, this is something that I think we should bring to the podcast? 
Yes. So I think we're all so used to hearing the stat. It's been around forever. 60% of women leave their advisors after they divorce their spouse Mm -hmm. or there is a a death of their spouse. And so um, what we found was very different. And, And again, I need to go back and remind the listeners that this is not all women and it's not all men. It's a, a small subset of high net worth primary breadwinners. But what we found, now we didn't ask, are you going to leave after your husband dies? But we asked, have you thought about leaving your advisor in the last 12 months? And less than half the number of women than men said that they had thought about it. 20% of women said that they had thought about leaving their advisor over the last 12 months. 39% of men said that they had thought about leaving their advisor. So this is an area I'm really excited to get the qualitative Mm -hmm. uh, results on because it does bring up a lot of questions. And what we always say is don't make assumptions, but I'm going to make some assumptions here. And then on the third podcast, maybe I can tell you whether they were right or wrong. But my feeling is that the women were probably more loyal or less likely to be thinking about leaving their advisor, perhaps because they had a, a large role, if not the primary role in hiring those advisors. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that their husband hired it and they got dragged along. Um, Also, the women, more so than the men, but uh, all of our respondents said that they wanted a personal relationship with their advisor, but the women more so than men. Men were more focused on performance. And so we did field the survey in the first quarter of this year, 2019, right after that terrible quarter in 2018, fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. So that could have had something to do with more men thinking about leaving if mm-hmm. if they truly were thinking of it as performance-based. But again, you know, both genders want a relationship. And so, you know, we hope that what advisors will take away is to understand how important it is beyond the investments to have a sound and deep relationship with your clients, or at least the ones you want to keep. I wonder how you would have uh, taken into account that recency bias. I mean, because that, that's that behavioral finance aspect of it. If the quarter just happened and they're feeling the sting and and performance is a huge, you know, focus for men. Yeah, well, we, we're hoping that we get some of those answers into our in our qualitative study. But okay. um, we're committed to this research again for 2020. So we're going to do a quantitative study again in 2020. So, um, you know, who knows what the market will be like at that point. But I think you'll find that we... We ask some questions differently and and dive a little bit more deeply on some of these topics. And I would also say, as an advisor, maybe the best way to think about this, if if they wanted to, in their conversations with the potential client or even their clients, not don't talk about performance as a broad, but talk about if you lost fifty thousand dollars, how would you feel? Mm -hmm. Rather than oh, I feel this way about performance. Maybe that. That could be a something to consider if they want to get more specific on where they're actually feeling about general performance. Yeah. Well, that changes the the focus, right? I, I've taken the risk analysis, and it'll say things like, you know, how do you feel about losing 20%? Well, 20% is not really a tangible number for me. Uh, it's a moving number. But if somebody said to me, how do you feel if you lost 100 grand? Whoa, 100 grand, right? That changes it. Uh, or, you know, if you're if you're really, really high net worth, maybe that number's much higher, much lower. So I like that you bring that up. That's an interesting way to take a look at that and really does change the conversation 
Uh, and so there's a great takeaway just for our listeners right there. Don't talk about the percentages of gains or loss. Let's talk about real numbers in proportion. So if they are a million million dollar client, you know, saying that you know, are you comfortable losing ten percent? By the way, that's a hundred thousand dollars. That's a really really big difference in conversation. Okay. So we're going to prepare for the the third podcast, right? Are there any other questions that I was supposed to ask you that I forgot to, or what can we look forward to on this next podcast? So there is uh, there was a, a part of the survey where we talked about what these particular investors would like from their advisor services they would like, and it really came down to four. We did a scale of one to ten, and men versus versus women and what they would like to see, and interesting. Insurance and annuities, 6.8 for women, 7.6 for men. Not not a huge change. Estate planning, both of them were seven point women, 7.6, 8.3 for men. And then services to help save time and to guide me, like elder care and that sort of thing, 6.5 for women, but 7.5 for men. So men are looking for that as well. Mm-hmm. So something to think about. And, you know, if I could interrupt, that kind of goes back to our conversation earlier about men taking on the caregiving role. And, you know, in addition uh, to that, men told us uh, men were most likely to be comfortable outsourcing functions. So figuring out what the elder care options are for mom and dad might appeal more to the, the male clients you serve Versus the female clients that feel a responsibility to do more of the heavy lifting themselves. And then something that definitely aligns with what we've already talked about, legacy planning, mm-hmm. men 7.5, women 6.5. Mm. And then, you know, um, it's not really a service. It's more of an investment. But one of the other surprising uh, results in our survey, at least to me, was that, you know, again, we always hear if you're selling sustainable investments or ESG, millennial and women, millennials and women. That's true, according to our survey. However, the men were a little bit more interested than the women in the sustainable investments. And so, um, again, that's something we're diving more deeply into in our qualitative, and we will um, next year in our quantitative. But, you know, I wonder if that's, you know, you, you see ESG is more of a board mandate, uh, and so as people are on these boards and they have these mandates put in front of them, they're, they're becoming more knowledgeable on ESG. So it, we really um, think that ESG is so critical. We think that over, the t- over time and, and not in the too distant future, ESG will just be a regular screen yeah. like anything else. And portfolios, you know, it, it won't be a special portfolio that has ESG screens. It'll be every portfolio mm-hmm. because those companies tend to have a little bit less risk than other companies because they're thoughtful about what they're doing with the environment, which can stave off litigations and lawsuits and, and so on. They're, they're thoughtful about building diverse communities within their walls and what that means, um, you know, from that standpoint. So we really think that over time, ESG is just going to be one other screen and it's not going to be anything unique. The other thing that this all ties into is on the client experience. And what we found was that men were more likely to remember a great client experience than the women. Men, 59%. Women, 47%. Oh. And there were some interesting, we've, we've had some fun with this at our, when we've spoken, and we say, well, how many of you think that having snacks in the office is 
women prefer versus men. Mm -hmm. It's actually men. Mm. And how many of you feel like what the the advisor is wearing makes are they, I think we are they stylish? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And everybody raises their hand. They think it's the women that care. Yeah. It's the men. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. know, when we talk about the client experience, David. I think it's so critical to stop on that one. Some of the other, those other stats are fun, but I don't know how critical, but the client experience, I mean, I don't know about you, Matt, but you know, when I get a great client experience, I want to tell everybody. everybody. I'm right there with you. I've got a restaurant down the street from me. I mean, Frankie has turned into my second family. Everybody knows Frankie's Restaurante, mm -hmm. because of me, I comment on his, their social media. I walk in, I get the hug and the kit. I mean, whenever we have out-of-town guests, we go to Frankie's. My hairdresser, the same thing, and on and on. But I, I don't do that if I get good service. I mean, you expect good service. It's for the people that go above and beyond. Frankie knows me, knows my family. He knows what we're doing. We're connected on Facebook. We're connected on Twitter. Same thing with my hairstylist and my chiropractor. Mm -hmm. They know what's going on, which makes the every time we engage with them a lot more fun because so, we have deeper conversations. What's interesting to me is ever since you and I have been on the road, I have my barber, Vince, and I've been thinking about his client experience with me. And he's his son and his son's three buddies are in the chairs up in front of the store, and then there's a little hallway, and then there's Vince in the back for the older guys. <laughs> and that's where I fall now. And so I've been thinking, oh, how is that to walk through the younger guys all getting their hair cut, very stylish, and I'm going to Vince, and Vince is like, ah, oh, David, and it's it's just like a homecoming. And it's I look forward to going. I It's not something I dread. So ever since we've been on the road, I've been thinking about, okay, what does Vince do? Yeah, the client experience yeah. is how they make you feel. Yep. Not what they give you. It's how they make you feel. Well, I would love for both quantitative and qualitative answers on what exactly the clients are truly looking for on that. Just because client experience is everywhere. Everybody always talks about it. In fact, from a marketing and branding perspective, well, you know, we provide great service. What does that mean? It's right? Table stakes. It, it really it is. It's absolutely table stakes. That's that's correct. I want Ruth Chris, right? I want to have somebody come in and me feel like I'm a cabillion dollars and they love me and they're happy that I'm there. I don't think that happens as often as advisors think it does walking into their office. All right, next podcast. So this was episode number two. What are we looking for in episode number three? What can our listeners uh, expect? So what we did in reference to being out on the road, we found that advisors were asking this same question. So Laura has drafted another paper utilizing some of the data, and we've talked through what are some actual actionable things to do because of this data for this subset of investors. All right. Yeah, we're, we're conversation starters. So um, what things should you ask um, given, you know, some of the myths and dispelling those myths? Now, you know, in some cases, the female you are serving may be nervous about risk. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that none of those things are true anymore, but how do you ask the question in a right way without making it a leading question? And sure. so we'll, we'll dive deeply into that next time. And a lot of times, really, it is just asking that specific question and knowing what questions to ask. 
that changes the conversation, and truly, that also changes the outcome. So, Laura Gregg, or Laura Gregg, that's you. And, David, thank you guys so much. I just called you Greg, dude. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for this one, and I'm looking forward to the third one. Great. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Yep, if you guys have not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you click that subscribe now button below. And if you know somebody who truly needs to hear this conversation, it's super easy. All you have to do is click the share button. And if you have any questions or comments that you'd like uh, us to cover on a future podcast, just email me at matt at topadvisorm.com. So for everybody at Northern Trust and Flexures, this is Matt Hallern, and we'll see you on the other side of the mic very soon. Are you ready to change the way you communicate with your clients? Are you tired of being the best kept secret in your area? Learn how to become a prolific online influencer, attract more ideal clients, and grow your business. Contact us today and see what the power of podcasting can do for your business. Click on the Contact Us link on our website at topadvisormarketing.com and set up a call to learn more. Follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook for more updates and information. This was brought to you by iris.xyz, a platform helping financial professionals become better in business and life through new media and new voices. Visit them and learn more at iris.xyz.